Can the practice of writing make better physicians? Why are stories essential to the practice of medicine? How can you become a better storyteller? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast where we explore how to design healthier lives. Today's guest is Dr. Alessandro Coliani. She is a writer and a head and neck cancer surgeon. She writes creative nonfiction essays about the world of surgical training, medical ethics, medical education, and illness. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, New England Journal of Medicine, the Examine Life Journal, Intima, the Journal of American Medical Association, Hobart, and other venues. Alessandra is wicked smart. She went to medical school at Johns Hopkins, has a master in history and philosophy of science from Cambridge. She did residency training at Harvard and a fellowship at Vanderbilt. Do you get the Design Lab newsletter in your inbox every week? If not, why not? You're missing out. Each week, the producer of Design Lab, Rob Leglisi, is going to send you some interesting, fascinating stuff to read about design and health. You can find the link in the podcast show notes. And remember to support us. We don't want your money, but we do want a review. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us five stars and leave us a review. Tell a friend about the show. Now here's my conversation with Alessandra Coliani. Alessandra Coliani, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I was doing a lot of research for this interview, and I read that theater, not medicine, was your first love. That is true. Yeah, I was a, a drama nerd, kind of from a pretty young age, did a lot of like child childhood theater and did a lot of theater in college and actually like stuck around Durham, uh, North Carolina to work with a theater company after college before even like thinking about going to med school. So yeah, that was definitely a big part of my growing up. <laughs> How did you end up in medicine? Were you like always drawn to medicine or you, you said, I can't make a living doing theater? No, you know, in college, I was a biology and philosophy major and I sort of gravitated towards medical ethics in college, was really always kind of interested tangentially in healthcare. My senior thesis was actually on like patenting of genes and gene licensing. And so it was sort of like related to patient care, but not necessarily directly. I had done a few of the pre-med classes, but just wasn't really, wasn't really pre-med in college. It didn't, it didn't strike my fancy. And then I graduated Those classes from classes are so boring. That's why the well, pre-med classes, I feel some, some of them are so, so introductory. Yeah. And, and like the, the people who are like doing them for pre-med, like they're not interested really in cell biology. So yeah. I was like jazzed about, you know, a Arabidopsis thaliana and like all this, like, <laughs> you know, cell biology stuff. And it just seemed like you were crossing things off a list in order to like apply and be a pre-med. Totally, and apply and be a med totally. student, so. But then I, I graduated. I like did some theater work for a while. I went and worked for a healthcare consulting firm in DC and really kind of quickly realized that I didn't want to be doing consulting. I wanted to be actually having an impact on patients and making my life meaningful in a different way. So that's kind of how I came around to medicine. And once I came around to it, it was like love at first sight, but or love at second sight, I guess. But um, it took a while for me to get there. My dad says, I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> And now you're currently practicing as a head and neck cancer surgeon in mm -hmm. Oregon, um, yep. but you are also a prolific writer. And I was curious to know, why do you write? 
And how the heck do you find the time to write? Because you are busy. (laughs) Well, I will say that kind of reading and writing have always been a part of how I process the world. So I, as a child, was a very avid reader and would like, you know, write poetry and fiction and plays. And that was always really a thing that I did. And then when I got to med school, I realized that the things that I was writing were much less interesting than what I was actually going through. And so I started kind of pivoting to creative nonfiction as opposed to the like fiction and plays and really, really crummy poetry that I had been writing previously. (laughs) And so it's just kind of always been a little bit of a, a way to slow things down for me. I think in medicine, you are often expected to just move on to the next thing really quickly, you know, on rounds, you're not really spending a lot of time kind of processing like what this patient is going through in front of you, or if you have an awkward interaction or something that kind of rubs you the wrong way you don't really have time to process that in the moment. And so writing sort of became a way to slow things down because there's a lot that happens during training, but I will say I didn't write anything really. I kind of journaled or took notes here and there, but I didn't really write anything finished until my third year of residency when I had a little bit of a research block and had some time to chill. I thought you had were a trained writer because you've written in a lot of impressive platforms from New England Journal of Medicine to the New York Times to New Yorker Magazine. And how did you actually find time to develop this craft of, of writing? Um, I mean, I've taken a lot of like creative writing courses, like in high school and college and kind of over the summers in between. And then what happened in PGY3 year was that a friend of mine, Nick Cuneo, who's a He's a med peds physician actually at Hopkins now. And he introduced me to this like longstanding writing group that's been going on at Brigham and Women's. And so I started going to that and that really kind of inspired me to start picking it up again because it had been dormant for a while. But that's one thing that I really like is that even if you aren't inspired by anything or don't want to put anything on paper for a while, like that skill is always there and it's like, it will always be there for you. And you're never done with any piece anyway. So you might as well not like worry about taking too long to, to finish an essay. Cause it's always like, I pick up stuff that I like published years ago and I'm like, Oh, I wish I had changed that sentence or like, Oh, I might, you know, retool this or think about it in a different way now. I like what you were describing about how writing helps us to process what we're experiencing. And we experienced some crazy stuff in medicine. You know, even this past week I, I worked an overnight shift and a young man was, was shot and apparently, uh, crazy road rage accident and then you oh. just go but it's like not then you go to the next patient and then your shift ends and then you don't talk about it with anyone and it's it's a horrible thing it's on the news i talk about it a little bit with my family but i just sometimes i worry about myself i'm like am, am mm-hmm. i just becoming so numb to these mm-hmm. experiences and because there's not that outlet in medicine not during training or not as an attending physician, like we're like, yeah, it's not really encouraged, but no. I think like if you get, you know, a group of five random physicians in a room, in any room, plus or minus alcohol, like eventually people <laughs> yeah. will start telling stories to each with other. With emergency about, room docs, there's, it's usually alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> with surgeons usually too. But yeah, I think, you know, I was lucky enough to have a bunch of friends of mine, like very close friends of mine from med school also matched in Boston. So even though we were all in different specialties, we're in the same city. We kind of knew each other from before residency. And so we went through this like very 
I describe it as the crucible, you know, the, the training crucible yeah. together. We would get together fairly frequently and just like what would end up happening is we would just start telling stories about like what we had gone through or what we had seen or like an interesting patient that we'd interacted with or like more often, you know, interactions with other doctors or other specialties. Do you know this person? Are they always like this? You know, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. And it was just, it was such a natural thing, storytelling with this group that it's it was so a real it's so release valve. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's this idea that I'm actually like kind of looking into in surgery right now. So, you know, this idea of like moral injury. So the idea being that like when you are prevented from doing what you feel is the right thing, or when you do the wrong thing or make a mistake that really causes harm to someone that can cause kind of a cognitive dissonance with oneself. Like you think of yourself as a moral agent, you think of yourself as a good person, and yet you can't really square this behavior that you either did or mistake that you made with that conception of yourself. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that they kind of try to treat this, this term was described in combat, like veterans who had seen combat. And one of the ways that they treat it is by having the veteran imagine giving advice to someone who had gone through something similar. So even if they weren't ready to kind of acknowledge, like, maybe I'm not a bad person, maybe this was just a bad thing that I did. If they're able to conceptualize giving the same advice to someone who had gone through something similar, that brings them a step closer to kind of integrating the experience into their, their own personalities and being able to move on. So mm. I do think that like, storytelling processing is super important for people who see very difficult things, which we by necessity do. And writing is like another step. I think writing like externalizes it, lets you be a little more objective about it, slows everything down, forces you to really like, how do I feel about this? And what was it about that interaction that that was so meaningful or, you know, prompted such reflection? And I think that uh, that's been super useful for me. I know it's not useful for everybody, but for me, it's been absolutely a lifeline. Yeah. And I don't, I wish I wrote more about my experiences and I've always wanted to do it. I've tried time from certain times of my training. And like one experience was so powerful and disturbing was when a, a patient of mine died literally the second week of my internship. It was a horrific case. I was alone on call mm. and it was just, I was like bawling in the bathroom, like not, not wanting to like come back to the hospital. I was like, did I make a mistake yeah. in my life? And only like writing about it years later was still this form of therapy. Cause I think I realized like, I think I have PTSD from that case and writing about it. And it wasn't published anywhere, but I just had to write about it. And I'm wondering, do you have tips for people who, who like me, who aren't writers to write about their experiences? Cause I think sometimes people who don't write or don't feel like they're good writers we put up roadblocks and we're like, mm. oh, we're, we're not going to write because, you know, what's the purpose of it? It's not going to get published. And yeah, I mean, I'll say, I think like publication, I think you people write things for many different reasons. Some people write things expressly for publication or like are envisioning an essay and a venue for the essay and the like uh, audience for the essay at the time of writing. That is really not my process. I think my, even though I, you publish a lot. Yeah. Even though I published a lot, what I, I just write, I like often when I'm traveling or often when I'm like on a plane, I think there's something about being in that liminal space of leaving one place, being able to see it a little more objectively that really prompts me to be reflective and start writing. But, you know, other than writing stuff for this writing group that I've been a part of for like the better part of three, four years now, 
it's never really written for publication that comes Mm. kind of later in the process for me. That's not everybody's process. Um, And I think certainly like if you're looking to write a piece for like a, you know, jam a piece of my mind kind of thing, or like a more reflective, reflective piece, I think the place to start is like, why are you writing it? And like, are you writing it to process? Are you writing it to share the story? Are you writing it to like, you know, think about it in a more objective way or to heal or just because you thought it was interesting. And I think starting there and thinking about is your audience medical people or lay people yeah, is really important because it is possible to like write something for lay people and then translate it or vice versa for a medical audience or vice versa. But um, I think if you're, that can be kind of a hurdle too. like how yeah. much jargon can I use? What can I assume that my reader knows? The other tip that I have this is maybe controversial i have i have a lot of thoughts about writing specifically about patients um Mm. in an identifiable way i think you know i have done it and i have gotten express permission from patients to write about them and to publish things that i've written about them and it's always been a like a good interaction like it's never been like why would you write this about me it's it's been kind of furthering of our relationship but it always leaves me feel feeling a little bit conflicted because yeah I don't know that patients can truly give permission to a doctor who is actively treating them to publish something because yeah. there's there's this power there, differential. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so, and there is that like personal gain aspect from publication. So I will say it's never an easy decision to go forward with publishing anything, particularly if it's something that, you know, can't be disguised mm. or like needs, needs explicit permission from the patient to do. So mostly I kind of focus on my own, my own experience, my own thoughts and feelings. So it's really more my story than like what actually happened to this person. There have been times I've read that you've actually given some of the, your stories that you wrote to the patient. Is that right? Can you describe one, one of those times? I can. Yeah. So I had a patient, my, I think I was a I can't remember if I was a three or a four, but I was kind of, I think I was a three. I was just coming on to my kind of senior resident in otolaryngology. Um, And I saw a consult in the morning that was like, oh, it's a nosebleed. But then it turned out it was this huge fungating, horrible, unresectable tumor. And this patient couldn't open his mouth, was extremely, had, you know, trismus, was not going to be intubatable and needed an airway protection because he was actively bleeding from his tumor. And so I'm getting my palpitations. Just think about that (laughs) as as an emergency room doctor, that's like literally one of the worst cases when a patient needs a surgical airway. Yep. And so we got called and kind of immediately on meeting him and his wife, like they had had this horrible experience at home where, you know, he woke up and was just hemorrhaging and they somehow made it to the emergency room. He kind of tamponaded off. And then they were in this like liminal space of like, he's stable, but he's not really stable. So I kind of made the executive decision that I thought he needed an awake tracheostomy. So I went and found my attending and we went and, you know, got him to the operating room perform the awake tracheostomy for for those mm-hmm. who aren't in the medical field who are listening an awake tracheostomy is probably one of the most scariest things a patient can go through can you describe what that is absolutely yeah so um essentially this patient needed us to cut into his neck and put a tube into his airway into his trachea but we couldn't put him to sleep to do that so we just had to use local anesthetic local numbing medicine in order to do that. And it's tough because I mean, I'm a surgeon, I'm used to my patients being mostly asleep and this patient, because of the kind of tenuousness of his situation really couldn't have any sedation at all. And so it was really just a combination of like talking him through it and the local anesthetic. 
And it was really emotional. I mean, it was scary. You know, you kind of take, you have this adrenaline takeover when you have a patient who's in a dangerous situation. And as soon as we kind of got the airway in, and as soon as he was then able to get put to sleep so that, you know, hopefully didn't remember a whole lot of the experience, then I kind of was able to emotionally process like this guy just met me 30 minutes later, I'm cutting into his neck with an, a stranger that he's never met in this like cold room, bright lights. Like what, what is it like to go through something like that? I so, love the first line of that essay. Do you, do you remember it? Oh, something about I'd like known you an hour before I held a knife <laughs> yeah, to your neck or something like that. Yeah. 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 Which is true. It's bananas to me, the trust that patients kind of by necessity put in us. So I wrote about it and then I ended up kind of seeing him over and over again Patients with symptomatic head and neck cancer often have to come to the hospital for various aspects of their care. And so every time he was in the hospital, I would stop by and we kind of were friendly. I mean, we weren't like hanging out outside the hospital, but I would say we had kind of a special relationship, ultimately wrote about it and then shared it with him. And it was really, even though I thought I had written it in a very respectful way, it was Mm -hmm. still weird to think about him reading these words that I'd written about probably one of the worst experiences of his life. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly gracious. He, his wife read it. He did not, he was not able to kind of finish reading it. It was too much. He didn't really remember much about that morning and didn't want to. And I thought that was totally valid. And then he ultimately was kind of excited that I had been thinking about him outside the hospital. I think in the same way that sometimes we can dehumanize our patients by like, oh, it's the gallbladder in room 30 or whatever. We as doctors can sort of be dehumanized by patients. Like we're not, it's like, you know, the, like the elementary school teacher that you just assumed lived in the classroom, like didn't have a life outside, doesn't have an apartment, doesn't have parents, like they're there for me. I think that patients can sometimes fall victim to that. And so when they meet somebody who is obviously human and has feelings and even like has feelings about them, I think it's kind of refreshing to certain patients. And that one really was meaningful to me and and to him. Mm. Why do you think stories are so important to doctors and other clinicians who take care of patients? I think for a number of reasons, I think, I mean, on the one hand, storytelling is very integral to what we do as physicians. So we hear patient stories. We try to put together a story based on data and imaging and the patient's narrative. Like that is a big part of what we do, even in this age of like CTs and MRIs, you know, getting done before the patient even like tells you what's going on. So I think a lot of what we do is kind of narratively informed. That's one reason I think storytelling is important. The other is because by virtue of what we do, we are privy to these incredibly meaningful life-altering moments in another human's life. And they have the impact on us as well. So even if I'm not going through this, like, you know, as you kind of described this person who got shot and you're reading about it in the news, then it impacts you. Like it affects you to, to know that this happened and to have been a part of the attempt at caring for this person. So I think by virtue of just being part of, I call them like heightened moments of humanity or heightened Mm -hmm. moments of reality, where like all of these things that that most people never see or most people never experience unless they're watching ER, you know, we get those every day. That's just part of our daily work. And so I think telling those stories or at least appreciating those stories is really integral to what we do and how we process what we do. Do you think writing or storytelling can make us better physicians? Oh, I do. And I'm not the only one that thinks that there's like this huge move so I'm sure you've, you know, about narrative medicine and this idea that 
kind of humanistic education can help us become better doctors, more empathetic, kind of more in tune with our, with our patients. I had to be a little bit convinced of that, this kind of field of narrative medicine. Retrospectively, I 100% believe that because I was a classics major in college. So I was like, nice. I was already humanities and like writing and reading ancient texts and writing essays. And when I got to med school, it was getting this kind of field of narrative medicine was there's an inkling of it because I'm yeah. so old, you know, kind of nascent. Yeah. yeah. Nascent. I was like, what is this narrative? I was like, I, that's why I went, that's why I went to college to learn this <laughs> stuff. Like how does it apply to medicine and yeah. convince, yeah. Convince the audience of why writing can make us better clinicians. So, I mean, I think that I'm trying to think of a good example from my own practice, yeah. but I think that hearing somebody describe their symptoms, like having a sense of how this illness fits into a patient's life story or sense of their own life story, that's a narrative exercise. And that's something that, that does help you to provide more holistic care. So as part of my treatment of patients with head and neck cancer, I talk to people about the prospect of a total laryngectomy, not infrequently. So total laryngectomy for cancer, removing the entire voice box, talking through a stoma for the rest of your life, totally life-altering operation. However, in patients who have either a cancerous larynx that is not treatable by chemotherapy and radiation or have recurred after chemotherapy and radiation or have a dysfunctional larynx, so it's not doing well for them for in terms of speaking or swallowing, that can be a mechanism by which they regain both their speaking and their ability to eat. But that prospect might look totally different to someone who used to sing, <laughs> or someone who had a family member who had a tracheostomy in the past. And so I think that understanding of like where this illness fits into a patient's full life is important, especially when you are going to do something that's going to completely alter the, the rest of the course of their life, which surgery often does, and particularly yeah. head and neck surgery often does. Just to play devil's advocate, some people could say, especially you as a surgeon who, I mean, what's most important is technical skills, going to the operating room, providing evidence-based medicine and getting the perspective of the illness in the patient's narrative. Does, is that really important? That important? I mean, for me, I think it's crucial because I think for me to operate on someone, I want to know and be sure that we are on the same page about the functional implications of the operation, the risks of the operation, and the fact that we as surgeons, even though we think we can control everything, we can't control everything. Mm -hmm. So having seen in residency various people who had been either counseled adequately or inadequately, like the worst thing as a surgeon would be for a patient to then say, God, why did I let you do this to me? Oh, right. Because yeah. that is just, it cuts like, so to the, you cut in order to heal and you mm -hmm. know that pain is going to be a part of the, part of the post-operative burden. You know that there are possible complications, but to have someone really say, God, if I had known then what I know now, there's no way I would have gone through with this. And I saw people, people do that. Oh. Right. I saw people who were trying to do the right thing. You know, head and neck cancer is often a surgical disease. So if you're a surgeon, that's like the way that you treat things, but it's not going to be right for every patient. And sometimes patients are not willing to, or retrospectively are not willing to accept the morbidity of a particular operation. And I think that a lot of that regret or decisional regret can be avoided by actually knowing your patients, talking to them, having a sense of their life stories. Do I need to know that they grew up in Des Moines? Maybe not, but do I need to know that 
the most important thing for them is getting to their granddaughter's wedding this summer. I do need to know that, mm. right? In your in your day to day, do you? I'm curious to know. Do you write every day? Do you write in the morning? Do you write on your phone in the hospital? Like, how do you build in writing into your day to day existence when it's so busy? When you're in a hospital, seeing patients at clinic or in the operating room. So I think there's. I have kind of experimented with different ways to build writing in. So I think nothing is better than a deadline. And so having this monthly meeting of the writing group is helpful. Even though I don't submit something every month, it at least reminds me like, oh, this is this this thing that's important to me. I'd like mm-hmm. to submit something or maybe retool something that I wrote six years ago. I've tried writing every day. It's not, I can't, <laughs> I can't. If I'm, and I hesitate to say like, I don't really write unless I'm moved to write, but that is kind of, the case. And so I find myself writing on planes or trains, find myself doing voice memos, dictating in the car when I'm on a walk or on a run. Oh, the voice memo. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I have a ton of them that I've never listened to that I'm like very curious to go back and listen to. (laughs) And then then you just uh, transcribe them Mm -hmm. afterward. Or they'll kick in an idea that I'm like, oh, you know what? That was a really weird interaction. I wonder if I should maybe start writing about it. And I just will kind of start and then it, it either like turns into an essay or goes into like the 30 day shit pile, which is <laughs> you have to put it in a folder and not look at it for 30 days. And then you can open it again. And you're like, is it shit? Oh, it's shit. Okay. All right. Yeah. I read some of your essays. I love them all. Uh, can I talk about one of them? It's called Lens on the Aesthetic Distance and Empathy. That was uh, published in New England Journal. And it really resonated with me, this theme of diminishing empathy. And I want to read one line. I suspected that I was changing, becoming more impatient and irritable, less kind to those around me, and at once less interested in my chosen field and less curious about anything but work. You know, I have felt that so many times in my career from training to being an attending and that the work that we're in has been changing me and diminishing my own empathy. And I have to actively combat against that, like to one, recognize it because there's been times in my life where I'm like, I have not recognized it and to design a strategy to like retain my empathy or to build empathy. Can you describe that essay and what you were going through during that time? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in retrospect, it was like pretty garden variety depression and burnout, (laughs) but yeah, it was kind of towards the end of my fourth year of training, fourth of five, and then a year of fellowship. And I trained in Boston and the winters are pretty gnarly and brutal. And I was in a very busy residency program, kind of notoriously grueling and just kind of felt like I had lost a lot of essential bits of myself and had this experience worrying that like I had chosen this field and this field had changed me and I didn't really know how to like get out of it and become a better human again. And then going to this art exhibit, this is actually a great case for why humanities is super important to certain people in medicine. I literally went to an art exhibit and had this profound moment watching this artist who, her name's Graciela Iturbide, and she's a Mexican artist who's been active since like the 60s, 70s. And she takes photos of indigenous folks in Mexico. And like, so I go to this art exhibition and have this like incredibly profound moment of watching somebody who had, who describes this very radical 
like empathy towards her subjects. So her subject matter was often quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. So she took photos of funerals, graveyards, corpses on the street, people in extreme poverty. And yet what she describes is that if she were seeing those scenes or images without her camera, that mm-hmm. she would feel extreme emotion about them and be not really be able to process them. But with the camera, the camera kind of protected her from what she was seeing. And so mm-hmm. this idea of like aesthetic distance as a protective mechanism for people who view things that would otherwise be very disturbing or that are very disturbing. So that kind of let me think about my writing in a different way. I knew that it, it had been very helpful for me personally to process these experiences, but I didn't really know why. Mm. And I think what it has done is given me a little bit of a, like an insulative layer from these sometimes truly horrific experiences of like watching somebody, you know, bleed out or watching like an arm get amputated after a yeah. medical error or, you know, watching just like witnessing suffering yeah. is not a thing that I envisioned doing on a daily basis. Yeah. There's so many directions I want to go, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel sometimes what we see as physicians has a, it can have like a dehumanizing impact when I see something so horrific and then I'm like, okay, then I could joke the next second and have so much distance that where I'm like, I, I think it's bad, you know? And then I actually mm. like the times when I'm kind of caught off guard and then I end up crying or things just disturb me so viscerally. And it has an emotional impact because mm-hmm. I think the training, our training trains us to be so distant because we have to do our job, but at the same time, there's this tension between being able to focus and do our work, but then feel nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, still, re- I always wrestle with that, you know? Yeah. I think like how much is too much is always like, you need some self-protection, but how much is too much is like something that I've always grappled with. And I mean, sometimes I don't necessarily think that the answer is like not to feel the feelings. Like I think that works out terribly for people who try to like not feel right. Like yeah. it just doesn't go well. Cause it's going to come out somewhere, or at least in my case, it's going to come out somewhere. This is a little tangential, but you know, there's the surgical personality. There's like these folks that you hear these complete horror stories about like, Oh, great surgeon, but like, wow, what a jerk or whatever. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that comes from anxiety or comes from like mm. insecurity or hundred percent. Yeah. When you peel back the layers, it's like, Oh, this guy's like a jerk. But then like, they're, they're just pretty insecure or anxious. Yeah. They're really worried about this case. And so they're taking it out, you know, and I wonder like how much more of a pleasant place to be certain ORs that I have trained in would have been had people been a little more honest and open about the emotions that they were feeling and not tried to just tamp it down. I think in front of patients, you sort of have to tamp it down, right? Yeah. Like nobody yeah. wants to be like, hearing from a surgeon in the pre-op area, like, boy, am I nervous about today? Like, hope it goes okay. Like nobody wants to hear that. You sort of have to, there's a a way to be honest with people and to be honest with your team when something is stressful that doesn't involve like yelling at them or like throwing a bloody towel at somebody across the (laughs) operating room. So as you know, now I'm an attending and I'm in my first year, which is often like such a stressful time. And so not only do I have people that I can like talk to about 
feelings of anxiety or insecurity or like, how did I not learn this during residency that I have had over the course of the past year, you know, peers, but also I try to be honest with my trainees. Mm -hmm. If I'm particularly like excited about something or, you know, if I haven't tried something before, or if I'm learning something for the first time, or if I'm nervous about a particular part of the case, I'm not like overly honest about that, but I, I do try to kind of clue them in so that they know that it's okay to feel feelings in the operating room. Like, yeah. It's unavoidable. Do you feel sometimes worried about writing about things so personally out there in public? Because I think we're not really encouraged to do that. And in fact, sometimes we're punished mm -hmm. for, for doing that. And it's, I think it's brave for you to do that. And like, how do you feel about sharing such stuff publicly on such a big platform? I mean, I think... Yeah. There's always going to be somebody who reads something that I write and says, you shouldn't have been a surgeon or you're clearly terrible or, you know, you're not cut out for this. People, people have said that to you? In my head, people have said that to me. On Twitter, people say things that are sometimes not so charitable. No, but what's the worst thing that somebody could say to me? I kind of like, I have already said it to myself a hundred times. I'm not cut out for this. I wasn't born to do this. I'm never going to be a great surgeon, yada, yada, yada. Like I've already said those things to myself. And I know them to not be true, right? Yeah. So I do worry, but for every potentially negative reaction that I imagine somebody giving me, four or five people will say, gosh, that really resonated with me. Or like, I had that very same experience, or I'm so glad somebody's talking about this. Mm. I'll share that. So I, I gave a talk about moral injury to my like academic society, the American Head and Neck Society. And the number of like senior surgeons who have come forward and said that they have felt morally injured or they have felt burnout or they feel anxious or they wish that there was a peer support system that they could like, it's bananas. These people who you kind of hold up as like, they can do no wrong. They've been yeah. practicing for 25 years. They're like admitting to feeling anxiety sometimes in the operating room or having emotions about a, anyway. And that, that might've been the first time in their life, like talking about it <laughs> that openly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think disclosure and vulnerability makes us stronger. It certainly makes me better. I think than I would be trying to hold everything in. Yeah. Cause I remember years ago I had, was giving a talk to a lot of people that was like recorded and talking about experiences of personal burnout. And I felt like very vulnerable, like, cause it's not encouraged. And, and I'm like, this is crazy. We got to talk, but we got to talk about how we make mistakes and how we feel burnout. And yeah, uh, it, it's, it's just a weird thing in our, in our profession where there aren't these out safe outlets maybe, mm -hmm. or, but I, I appreciate what you did. Cause I think it opens up and says, it's okay to, to other, other people maybe? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that there's definitely a trend within surgery and within medicine in general to be more humane towards one another. There's like much more kind of mental health days or like wellness initiatives, which we can argue whether they actually work giving residents ice cream once a year. Does that really come back <laughs> or not? Not sure. But I think that there's at least a vocabulary to discuss these kinds of issues that otherwise can feel extremely isolating. And so if something I write resonates with someone and they're able to then like put a name to a feeling, I think that 
that's like the best for me. That's the best that my writing could ever do is like tell somebody that they're not alone in suffering through this amazing and occasionally very destructive profession that we've chosen. Yeah. Do you sometimes regret going into medicine and not pursuing your career in theater? <laughs> you know, when I think about like that decision, cause it really was a decision. Like, do I move to Chicago and try to do sketch comedy at second city? Or do I like think about going to do a post back at university of Maryland and go to medical school? What I was concerned about was a meaningful life and something that would bring something that would benefit others. Cause I had been, I just didn't feel like the work that I was doing at that consulting firm was particularly meaningful. It wasn't going to change anybody's life. It wasn't going to improve the world in any way. And then when I continue to kind of ruminate on that, like what higher calling could you have than trying to help a human in need? And so for me, I felt like I enjoyed science. I thought that I could be a good doctor and I kind of felt like there was a moral imperative to go and be a good doctor mm. rather than to go and try sketch comedy at that time. And that sounds very self-important. And I was a very self-important 23 year old. <laughs> Do I regret going into medicine? No, because I think that the, you know, especially now that I'm finally done with training, like the process of seeing somebody in clinic that has a surgical problem and counseling them about the surgery and earning their trust and being allowed to cut them open in this incredibly intimate act and then to watch them heal and to be better afterwards. There's really nothing better than that. There's nothing in my life that feels better than, than that. I think I could have gone a bunch of different ways, but I'm glad that I ultimately, I'm glad that I went this way. It was hard. And there were definitely times when I regretted it or thought like, Oh God, I'd screwed up my entire life or, or whatever. But I think when it boils down to it, it was the right decision. Well, thank you for making that decision. Thank you, for all your, <laughs> thank you for all your stories. We're going to link to them in the show notes. So I really appreciate you freeing up some of your busy schedule to join us on the show. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much. This was a, a real pleasure and I appreciate being invited. So thank you so much for chatting with me. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alessandra Coliani. You can find her on Twitter at A-L-E-S-S. A-C-O-L-A-M-D. And reach out to me on social media. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. <laughs>